Hey guys, as many of you know, if you follow me on social media, I spent most of this week recovering from a rough case of COVID, and I didn't have the voice or energy to record the episode I had planned for this week. With that being said, though, our Big Mad True Crime Patreon fam voted to share one of their episodes with you, which is a case I've never stopped thinking about. With that, small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Thirty-one-year-old Nikki Vander Hayden was about as down to earth as you could get. She was beautiful, blonde hair and a smile that lit up every room. She loved being outdoors, hiking, and being one with nature. She was sweet, a little sassy, and kind. And she always thought about what she could do for those around her before she ever thought about doing anything for herself. That's probably what made her pursue a career in teaching. In 2010, she graduated from UWGB with a bachelor's in both science and education and spent the next six years of her life as a substitute teacher and she loved every second of it. In her 20s, she fell in love with a man named Brian. The two got married and had two children whom they adored, a boy and a girl. And while it seemed almost like their fairy tale might have come quick and easy, in the end, their marriage didn't work out. Around 2011, Nikki and Brian parted ways, but they did their best to co-parent as amicably as possible because those two babies had become the center of their worlds. Around early 2015, Nikki found love again with a man named Doug. He was good-looking, successful, had his own house, which he built, by the way, and was five years older than Nikki, so maybe he'd be a little bit more mature than the other fish in the dating pool. After dating for a while, Nikki found out she was pregnant again, and Doug did his best to be excited. Nikki'd been down the parenting road before and was more than elated to be adding a third to her crew, but Doug was a little more standoffish. But ready or not, your baby comes, and in November of 2015, they welcomed a sweet baby boy. Nikki took some time off work to be home with him. She was exclusively breastfeeding, and frankly, they could afford for her to be a stay-at-home mom for now, so she took it all in. The snuggles, the cries, the midnight feeds, she was ready for it and really cherished her time at home with him. Her relationship with Doug, though, was a different story. Something about him seemed off. There wasn't that we just made a person in all kind of love that you'd expect. He almost seemed more distant than ever. Mirror.co actually reported that he told his mom that he wasn't sure if he was ready to be a family man and that he was actually considering evicting Nikki and her kids from his house, which seems a little late considering he'd been dating a woman with two kids and they now had one together. Nikki thought it might run a little deeper than that, though. She worried that he might be having an affair. She would have these family dinners with her parents every Tuesday, and every Tuesday she hoped Doug would join them, but he rarely did. In fact, he showed up less than a handful of times. In February of 2016, Nikki decided it was time to go back to work and start making her own money again. So she reached out to her friend Dallas, who was more than happy to watch Nikki's son on the days that she subbed. Dallas worked the night shift at her job, so it worked out perfectly. Regardless of the distance and suspicions in their relationship, Nikki wanted to make it work for her baby and her children in general, so they just kept trucking. 
On Wednesday, April 20th, 2016, after six months of being a full-time mom to an infant, Nikki was ready for some freedom. And in perfect timing, Nikki and Doug's friends just so happened to invite them to a concert in Green Bay. Frankly, anything that gave her a little bit of a break in time around other adults sounded like a freaking plan to her. The two oldest kids were already going to be with their dad, and her friend Dallas agreed to watch their newest son, but Dallas wasn't going to be able to get off work until about 10.30 p.m. that night, so Nikki's mom said she'd watch him until then, and then Dallas would come to their house after work and stay with the baby until Nikki and Doug got back from their night out. So, the night of the concert came, and the crew headed out to the watering hole to see the Steel Panther concert. Nikki was having a blast, but still having some baby FOMO, so Dallas sent her updates throughout the night, letting her know when he woke up, when she fed him, and when she changed him, and encouraged her to have a great night because, frankly, she deserved it. At 11 p.m., the concert ended, and most of their friend group, who were more than a few beers at this point, Nikki included, headed out to a bar called the Sardine Can. Doug, however, decided to stay back and hang with his friend Greg. Nikki was wasn't exactly thrilled about this at all. It was the one time they were able to go out and be a kidless couple together, and she didn't feel like he was taking advantage of it the same way that she wanted to. But he said he'd meet back up with them in a little bit, so they parted ways. Her frustration was boiling, though, and just 12 minutes after she left the watering hole, she started texting Doug, saying, What bitch are you with? Fuck you, abusive asshole. Wow, what slut are you with? Because none of your friends know. And you hurt me all the time. Doug told Dateline that he was puzzled by her texts and didn't know why she was talking like that. But let's be honest, their relationship wasn't exactly marshmallows and unicorns. Nonetheless, all he texted back was, LOL, stop. Be good. I'll see you at the sardine can, which probably only frustrated her more. Nikki tried calling him a few times, but he didn't answer a single one of them. However, one of the other girls in the group called him and he picked right up, again, only fueling her anger. She continued to drink and dance with her friends, but her friend Aaron, who was on purse duty, said that it was clear that the longer Doug was gone, the more upset Nikki was getting. Eventually, around 12.30 a.m. on the 21st, everyone decided to call it a night, and the group called an Uber to get everyone home safely. But Nikki was drunk and heartbroken and just wanted to be left alone, which is never good in the middle of the night in a crowded city. She started walking down Maple Avenue alone, and Aaron tried catching up with her to convince her to get into an Uber with them. At one point, he was in a full sprint trying to catch up with her, and when he did, she pushed him away and wound up actually falling down herself. She was yelling and crying and even kicked him at one point, and it created such a scene that Aaron backed away. He waited a minute and then helped her up onto her feet again and told her, you're a babe in the woods, essentially telling her it's not safe for you to be out here walking alone this late at night. But she was insistent, so he let her. This was the last time anyone ever saw Nikki alive, or so they thought. 
Doug and Greg made it to the sardine can right after everyone had left. He said that he'd lost track of time, but I'm sure the booze and Adderall had something to do with it. To Nikki, he was a no-show, but to him, he was wondering where in the hell his girlfriend was. He tried calling her, but her phone was off. It had turned off at 1230 that night and never turned back on. After trying multiple times to figure out where she was, he texted her, Hello, tried calling you 10 times. Unfortunately, it was 10 times too late. He didn't seem too concerned, though, because him and Greg stayed at the bar for a hot minute and then brought the party back home around 2.40 a.m., Dallas was sleeping on the living room couch, and the two were so loud that they wound up waking her up. She told them that the baby was asleep in the bassinet upstairs and then tried to leave, but Doug and Greg were curious about where Nikki was. So they talked for about 20 minutes, and Doug told Dallas to keep calling her, figuring if she was upset with anyone, she wouldn't be upset with her and would pick up the phone if she thought it might have to do with the baby. But every single call went straight to voicemail. This wasn't about Nikki's screening her calls, Nikki's phone was off, and it had been since 12.30. Greg winds up leaving, and Dallas is getting more and more worried about Nikki. She was breastfeeding, and she knew Nikki would be engorged at this point, and she wasn't the kind of mom who would just not come home to her baby. She asked Doug, could she be with her sister? Is she with a friend? Did she go to another bar? Did she walk home? Did she walk over the bridge? Did you drive that route home? And Doug's answer to everything was no, 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 no. So Dallas asked one last question. Is she in the trunk of your car? And Doug laughed and again said no. She didn't feel like this was going anywhere and it was really late at this point. So she got up to leave. But Doug had another question. Did she have any weed? because apparently he needed to relax. She did have some weed, so she gave it to him and he smoked it and offered her some, but no, she was good. She just wanted to get out of there. Once out of the house, Dallas ran to her car and drove home as slowly as humanly possible, going down every road Nikki could have taken to get home, but there was no sign of her anywhere. On the short drive home, Doug actually wound up calling Dallas five times while she was out looking for his girlfriend and told her, keep calling Nikki, keep calling Nikki, just keep calling her, and then asked where his son was, which seemed odd since he was clearly upstairs, but dude was high and drunk, so whatever. The following morning, Doug woke up and Nikki still wasn't home. She figured she'd just stay the night at some friends and might be hungover, so he didn't panic too much. But by 2 p.m., he was getting a little worried. Without having any of her family members' phone numbers, which is weird in and of itself, he messaged Nikki's sister Heather on Facebook to see if she'd seen Nikki. She hadn't and had no clue anyone was even worried about her, so she tried calling her sister, but her phone was still off. The two continued to message back and forth, taking turns between calling different hospitals and jails in the area, but alas, there was still no sign of Nikki. At 
4.30 p.m., he finally called the police to report her missing. Within minutes, Doug's parents, Nikki's sister, and the police were all at his house filing a missing persons report. Little did any of them know that a badly beaten and unrecognizable body had already been found earlier that morning in a field near their home. In the early morning hours of May 21st, 2016, a farmer, his son, and his son's friend were walking in a field off Hoffman Road in Bellevue when the farmer's son saw what he thought was a dead deer. As he got closer, it was clear that this wasn't a deer and that it was a badly beaten human body wearing only a pink wristband and one sock. The farmer immediately called 911, and the officer who responded to the scene was shocked at the brutality of what this person must have gone through. He knew that they'd have to use extraordinary measures to try and identify this victim. And maybe that's why the police responded and took Doug's missing persons report so quickly, even though they didn't let him or the family know what they'd found earlier that morning. The police left and began their investigation, and Doug and Heather stayed at his house putting together pictures of Nikki to begin their own investigation and wait for any news. That news would come quicker than either of them anticipated, though. The two were watching the news that afternoon when they saw a report about a body being found just a few miles down the road from their house, and Heather threw her hands up to her face in shock and actually wound up giving herself a bloody nose. Soon after, Doug got a call from one of the officers asking him to come down to the station to answer some questions, so he did. And that's when he found out that the body found in the field was indeed the body of his girlfriend, Nikki Vander Hayden. She had been identified using her dental records. While police were questioning him, other officers responded to his and Nikki's house and were shocked when they found blood on the garage floor and in Nikki's car, hair and a hanger outside. Law and crime reports that a pair of Air Jordans were also recovered, which had a herringbone pattern that looked like it may match impressions left on Nikki's back. Her bloody clothes were also found on the on-ramp to Highway 172 in Green Bay, and the following day, a neighbor found a pool of blood in a cord, which investigators thought might have been used to strangle Nikki. With that, on May 23, 2016, they held Doug on suspicion of murder pending DNA results. But... 18 days later, when those DNA results came back, the officers had more questions than they had answers. According to 48 Hours, the blood in the garage wasn't human. The blood in Nikki's car wasn't hers. The shoes had none of Nikki's DNA on them, and the male DNA that was found on Nikki's clothes, body, and the cord found by the neighbor wasn't a match for Doug, so he was released. They were back to the drawing board and needed to get more usable DNA from the evidentiary items to be able to run a general search through their database to hopefully get a hit. And in August of 2016, it worked. They got a match. 40-year-old George Birch. Who in the fuck is George Birch? Literally none of Nikki's family or friends had ever heard that name and he wasn't even on police's radar, at least not for Nikki's murder. 
George was kind of a nomad who had never accomplished anything in his life and had actually been charged in a gang-related homicide back in 1998, but was found to be not guilty. He had two kids who he rarely saw in a shit ton of birds, which is now going to be added to the red flag list. He was currently couch surfing after getting kicked out of a friend's house where he kind of had it made. They'd been letting him rent a room for $100 a week and let him use their car to get to and from work. But when he stopped paying rent, spent it out on bars and their truck went missing, they were done with him. Two days after Doug was released, George was formally charged with Nikki's murder and held on a $2 million bond. Homeboy wasn't getting out anytime soon. George adamantly denied killing Nikki, though he doesn't deny having been with her the night she was killed. He says that he was out at Richard Cranium's, another bar in Green Bay, when he says he wound up standing next to Nikki. The two got to talking about kids and separation and divorce and started flirting with each other, and he said that she seemed to be there alone. He claims they stayed at the bar until it closed, and after last call, he invited her to come back to his place or his room that he was renting at his friend's house at the time. He says when they got there, his friend's dad was sitting in the living room in his robe and that that kind of killed the mood. He said Nikki used the bathroom and that he thinks he grabbed a condom, then says they just went back to his truck to head towards her house, which he said was cool since her kids were with their dad that weekend. George claims they pulled over on the street in front of their house because there was a light on and she was worried that the sitter might still be awake. But we're talking around 3 a.m. at this point. So if he's telling the truth, it's Doug, Dallas and Greg who are all up worried about where Nikki might be. According to George, they started fooling around and moved things to the back seat. He said that they kept all the windows open because it was a nice 70 to 80 degrees out that night, but weather underground determined that was a lie and that it was more like 50. At one point, he says that they had the back door open during their alleged sexual encounter. However, if this was the case, certainly either Greg or Dallas would have seen them. The dome light would have come on and it would have been easy to see who and what was going on inside that vehicle. But alas, no one reported seeing anything. Oh, but George claims someone did. That someone being Doug, the only person who never left that house after coming back. George's story is that Doug came outside to find George and Nikki having sex and that he knocked George out cold. When he came to, he said that Nikki was dead and Doug had a gun to his head. He said that Doug forced him into his blazer with Nikki's dead body in it and made him drive her out to the field and leave her there and then just let him ride off into the sunset. But if Doug had a gun, why was Nikki beaten to death? And if Doug killed Nikki and then forced George to help him dispose of her body, why would he leave a witness who knew every single detail of the crime behind? All of those answers came out during the trial. George's entire defense was that it wasn't him, it was Doug, even though Doug had been cleared of any involvement in Nikki's murder. Nikki suffered 
241 injuries that led to her death. Not two, not even 41, 241. She had multiple cuts and bruises to her pubic area, cuts to her vaginal opening, cuts along her vaginal wall, blood pooling inside of her vaginal wall, cuts on her breasts that would have been severely engorged at the time she was killed. She had a fractured jaw, had been strangled, and had defensive wounds on her hands, feet, and fingernails. Nikki had fought for her life. George tells the courts the same thing he said earlier, that he had had rough consensual sex, but that he wasn't conscious for Nikki's murder, that when he came to, she was already dead, and that Doug had a handgun pointed at him and forced him to dispose of her body. The problem here is that Doug didn't own a handgun. Sure, he had guns, but none of them were handguns. He mentions details that only someone who handled her body would know, like the fact that he had taken a left down a dirt road, then a right towards the woods, then had to make a U-turn before stopping, and that her body was incredibly heavy due to her no longer having a center of gravity, and that he had to hold her under her armpits to drag her to where she was later found. He claims that once he put her down, he lunged at Doug, pushed him, and hauled ass back to his truck. The problem being that his truck only moved 82 feet in 15 seconds. So dude is running from a guy who he says killed a girl, but then drives away slower than he ran to the truck. He pulled out his phone, got directions to his house, and lit himself a cigarette, just happy to be 82 whole feet away from the man he was apparently in fear of his life from. On his way home, he would have passed the sheriff's office, but he didn't stop. He didn't pass go. He didn't call 911. He just tossed Nikki's bloody clothes out the window, hopped on Highway 172, and went home to his $100 a week bedroom. Once he got there, he threw his bloody clothes into the wash, took a shower, and noticed that his head was a little sore. This guy claims he was knocked out cold, but it took an hour and a disposal of a human being later for his shampooing efforts to make him realize that his head was sore. After that shower, George went to fucking sleep. The next morning, after Nikki had been found, and while Doug and Heather were calling hospitals and jails in the area, George was getting ready to go fishing with his buddy Ed, who he rented the room from. Ed drove and George slept on the way. They caught some fish and took some pictures, one picture where you can see dark circles or possible bruising on one of his hands. Doug had no evidence of defensive wounds on his body when he was held. Ed says that George slept again on the way back and that nothing weird or unusual ever came up during their trip. He seemed completely normal aside from being a little tired. This man had either killed or at the very least been involved in a murder the night before and was out fishing the next day. That night, while the two were watching TV, news of Nikki's body being found was shown and Ed said something to the effect of, whoever the scumbag is that did this needs to be taken down. George had no response, though. He was fixated on the coverage. 
The courts move on to evidence found at George's house and mention another pair of Air Jordans with that herringbone pattern on the soles. An expert on forensic finger and footprints testified that she wasn't able to positively match George's shoes to the ones that left the imprint on Nicole's body, but it's still one hell of a coincidence. They also found George's DNA on Nikki's sock, the cord that had been used to strangle her, and 16 different places on her body. Doug's DNA was found nowhere. Now, George said that they had sex, so say they did. That could explain his DNA being on a piece of her clothing. But if he was unconscious during her murder and all he did was help move her body, why would his DNA be on the murder weapon? And while all of this seems pretty damning, things are about to get a lot more interesting. The Green Bay Gazette reports that George had been involved in a hit-and-run case after Nikki's murder and had voluntarily allowed the police to download his cell phone data to clear him of any involvement, and admittedly, they couldn't tie him to it, so he was never charged. But because he had volunteered this information, the police were allowed to use it in Nikki's case to see where he was on the night of her murder, and holy shit, it was a goldmine. George's cell phone data and Google dashboard put him at the bar around 12.45 a.m., then his house, and near Nikki's house at 3.01 a.m. Nikki was being murdered right outside of her own home while Doug was getting ready for bed, and he had absolutely no idea. At 3.59 a.m., George's phone shows him in the area of where Nikki's body was found, and at 4.02 a.m., it shows him driving away and towards where her bloody clothes were located. And George couldn't deny that he was the one who had his phone, because throughout the entire horrific process, he was in communication with his girlfriend and other friends. And who has the time for that if someone has a gun to your head and is forcing you to dispose of a woman that you didn't murder? And maybe, maybe all this could be explained by his version of events, right? Well, maybe if Doug wasn't wearing a Fitbit. Doug's sleep data and step counter showed that he was in fact asleep at the time that they estimate Nikki was being killed and moved, and that throughout the night he took less than 100 steps, either to use the bathroom or tend to their baby. If you're wondering about the vehicle George was driving that night, which would have had Nikki's DNA all over it, it was never tested. And not due to any negligence, it wasn't tested because it had conveniently been stolen and torched before George was ever considered a suspect in Nikki's murder. The courts introduced George's search history, and between the day after her murder and the end of June, George searched for articles about her case 60 four times. He searched for no other news whatsoever. The defense tried to pull one last stop by trying to discuss an open felony domestic violence charge against Doug. Okay, you have my attention. 
but it wasn't allowed since it hadn't been tried yet, which means he hadn't been deemed guilty or not guilty. And the defense wasn't allowed to use allegations in court to try and set a character tone for Doug. The defense felt like the courts were prolonging that hearing, so it couldn't be used in the testimony, but it is what it is. With that, the jury was sent out for deliberations with DNA, GPS, and cell phone data to rehash and figure out whether they believed George or whether he was full of shit. And lo and behold, he was found to be full of shit. George Birch was found guilty of first-degree intentional murder of Nikki Vander Hayden and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, the judge calling Nikki's murder the most brutal murder by one person in the history of Brown County. He was also ordered to pay a metric butt-ton in restitution to her family. To Doug, the man he tried to pin the murder on, he was ordered to pay $254,820. To Nikki's mother, brothers, and sister, he was ordered to pay $9,887. And to the Crime Victim Compensation Fund, he was ordered to pay $4,292. George will be able to earn up to $1.41 an hour while working different jobs within the prison. So if he works 10-hour days, seven days a week, and doesn't buy so much as a honey bun from the commissary, he should have his restitution paid off in about 52 years. Doug was eventually heard on those domestic charges, and it turns out that they were actually for second degree, recklessly endangering safety and false imprisonment. I can see why the defense might have wanted to bring this up. The victim? Nikki's fucking sister. She had moved in with him to help with the baby after Nikki's death, and in February of 2017, they were headed out to a party at a bar when Douglas tried feeling up her leg. She told him, please don't, and this triggered some kind of rage because he started speeding up the car, ran through a red light, and ignored every single one of her pleas to pull over and let her out. He only stopped when she started kicking the windshield in a desperate attempt to either break it or get to try and stop her so she could run out. According to the Green Bay Gazette, Doug pled no contest to both charges and both will just disappear if he stays out of trouble for 15 months. In the end, a predator took advantage of a beautiful, hardworking mother who loved her children with every ounce of her being. He spotted weakness and he preyed on it. When it was time for court, he used the toxic relationship she was in as his own defense. And had Doug not been wearing a Fitbit and had George not been using his phone during the events of that night, it may have worked. While Doug may or may not have been a toxic boyfriend, in this case, it didn't make him a murderer. The murderer was out fishing. For all maps and photos pertaining to this case, check out Nikki's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about the crazy that is this case. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 